The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many people are brand new to the Buddhist studies class. Why don't you raise your hand? Welcome. So for you folks especially, actually probably for you folks only, on the sign-in sheet in the lobby, print your email very clearly because I'll get you on the email list. If you didn't get an email on Friday and then I sent another one this afternoon, that means you're not on the Buddhist Studies Google group, and which means I need your email. And anybody else who put their email down, I don't need it, and it will just make more work for me. So cross it off when, before you leave. Um, so if you've gotten the email on Friday, got the email on Friday and this afternoon, a second email, that means you're already in the group. <clears throat> so a few nuts and bolts. We have a sit from 7 o'clock to 7.25. Thank you. Thankfully, Ty was here to remind folks, but we like to protect that space for people who can get here early enough to do that optional sit. So you just you can sit outside or sit in the lobby if you get here a little early, but don't come in until 7.25 unless you can get here at 7 or a few minutes after 7. Then you're welcome to join in for that 25-minute sit. And uh, this is different than the weekly practice groups for those who are new and a reminder to other folks. So it's okay if you have business obligations to take you out of town or make it so you can't be here on a Monday night or if one of your kids gets sick or you get sick. But the commitment we all make to each other, even now as a pretty big group, is that when we can be here, we come to the Buddhist Studies class. So if you want to be in this class, that means you're committed to being here when you can be here. So you wouldn't stay home because there's a good football game on or something like that. You would just come and you would pay attention to the unpleasant feeling. <laughs> and you would see, oh, that unpleasant feeling's like this. You know, that feeling of missing something important. It's really amazing. This study, you know, it's true with all the Buddhist studies classes because it, you know, they, the Buddhist teachings just bring us right to this place <clears throat> where we're on this tipping point between, on one side, being a suffering human being, and on the other side, either directly, immediately getting it, or having some scent of the fact that it's okay. Like, being a human being who's sensitive in an imperfect world is okay. It's really okay. It's always been okay. It will always be okay. So, somewhere in your practice you should be intuiting a sense of freedom. Because actually, without that intuition of freedom, we don't really know how to practice. And a lot of people think, well, I'm not far along enough in my practice to know anything about freedom. But it's really just a matter of trusting your own experience. Because for sure we know the experience of being bound up. Anybody here not have a lot of direct, immediate experience with being all tied up in knots, entangled. There's a great line from the Vasudhimaga, this Path of Purification. It's a manual that was written several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, but it's a great line. 
The world is entangled in a knot. Who can untangle this tangle? Right? And so when we listen to these teachings, when we contemplate them in terms of our own experience and talk together and look deeply, it should, in moments at least, have, we should have a sense of the disentangling. That's just things are opening up. What felt like a burden now doesn't feel like a burden. And this is especially true with the contemplation of the feeling tone in the moment. So in terms of that tipping, when we see or <clears throat> relate to the feeling tone in the way our mind's conditioned, it always seems like a problem, even if it's pleasant. The problem is how to hold on to this, how to make it last. Or if it's neutral, like how to ignore it, because I don't care about neutral feeling. When's the last time you felt something or cared about your shirt touching the back of your body. We don't care about those sensations. Unless you got one of those labels that are irritating you, you just don't care about those sensations. Or we go to the other way, where the other side of the fence, where we realize that feeling tone is just that. It's just nature. So if we don't understand that about feeling tone, then we take feeling tone to be very important information for myself and myself that wants to lock up pleasantness forever or get rid of unpleasantness forever. <clears throat> so there's a, this particular class on the feeling tone is part of a series of classes we started this summer with mindfulness of the body, now mindfulness of feeling, this coming winter, mindfulness of the mind, and then mindfulness of dhammas, the maps of the mind. And these four foundations or four establishments of mindfulness are part of this collection of teachings called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddhist discourse on the foundations, the establishments, the frames of reference where we put our awareness, where we put our mindfulness. Where we put it, we open to the body just as it is. Feeling tone just as it is. The qualities of mind just as they are. And we also open to the maps, like the map of the hindrances or the map of the seven factors of awakening that we'll learn in the spring. So let me read a little bit from that discourse, that very famous discourse the Buddha gave on these four foundations of mindfulness. But I'll just share the part on feeling. The Blessed One said this, This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress. So that should get our interest. For the attainment of the right method and for the realization of unbinding, which means the cessation of all that is agitating in the heart. In other words, the four frames of reference, or the four foundations of mindfulness. Which four? So mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of the maps of the mind. So this is what the Buddha says about the feeling. <clears throat> there is a case where a practitioner remains focused on feelings, in and of themselves, ardent, alert, 
mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. Now there's more, but I just want to take a moment because these instructions, as you probably imagine, are that's for everything. Same with the body. We're supposed to be ardent, alert, and mindful with the mind, with the maps of the mind. So ardent has this flavor of uh, pointing to the kind of effort. When we're ardent, it means we care deeply. So the effort, it's like the important thing about effort is where does the energy of the effort come from? And it's important that it comes from compassion, not greed, not aversion. So when we're ardent, we care about this life. And there's a very resonant committedness when we care about this life. Like, it's not a short term. We're in it for the long haul because we care. We're not going to be done with this commitment until the heart feels free of everything that it is oppressed by. So this ardency. And that's what gets us to a place like Kamagran on a Monday night, you know, when we're all busy, too busy, most of us. This ardency. And those of you who've been coming back, we've, this is, I don't know how many times we've done this, but I think the six-year curriculum of the Buddhist Studies class started in 98, I think, or 99. So we've been cycling. Some of us in this room have been cycling through these teachings of the Buddha many times already. So the Buddha says, ardent, alert means comprehending. It's like that clear comprehension. So we're digesting, we're discerning the experience that's being known in the moment. And that discernment really comes because of the continuity of awareness. Then we really understand because it's a lawful, whatever this is, it's a lawful process unfolding. And it can be, that lawfulness can be comprehended. So we're ardent because we care, we're committed, we're willing to comprehend, to see how it's lawful, this lawful natural process. And mindful here is the more technical definition of mindfulness, to keep it in mind. So what are we keeping in mind? How it feels. Every moment feels like this. Right? Each moment has a particular feeling. It feels like this. And it's like, it's not different than the present moment. Whatever you're knowing in the present moment, it's just like one facet of that experience is how it feels. Oh, it feels like this. It hurts like this. It's pleasant like this. It's neutral like this. It has a feeling. But be on guard with this theme your mind might want you to, you know, that part of the mind, that analytical part of the mind might want you to say, well, is this pleasant or unpleasant? Well, you may know, in one moment you may know, oh yeah, this is clearly unpleasant. But don't try to tell yourself what it is that you're feeling because the feeling itself is what's important. If it's clear to the mind that that feeling is unpleasant, great. Or pleasant, great. Or neutral, great. But it's about being intimate with how it feels in the moment. So it's very similar, it's very close to being aware of the sensation. And remember, 
It's about recognizing. It's more about how you're aiming your attention because the feeling tone's already there. It's not something anybody does. We're not generating, personally generating, what the feeling tone is. When any experience is known, whether it's a mental experience being known, like a memory, or a sensation being known, physical sensation being known, there's a, the feeling tone is right there. So it's considered to be one of the seven universals. <coughs> seven factors or states of mind that are there in every experience. Contact, you don't need to know these. Feeling, perception is there. Volition. One-pointedness, this isn't in terms of concentration, but that the mind knows one thing at a time. And that one thing happens in each mind moment. There's some life force there. And then there's the quality of attention. So that there's a present moment awareness. So these seven things are there. So feeling is there. Perception is there all the time. And there's nothing we can do. You can't change the feeling tone, but you can change the mind's understanding of what feeling is. And we'll get to that in just a second. So the Buddha says, there's a case where a practitioner remains focused on feeling in and of themselves, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress in reference to the world. So that means that we're aware of the feeling tone, and it's not that experience isn't mediated by language, by our thoughts about it. It's not in terms of anything conceptual. It doesn't mean there aren't thoughts. It just means that the connection, the awareness, the understanding or discernment of the feeling tone is independent of thought. Right? So I have sensation in my knee. You probably have some obvious sensation in your body. You can just experiment right now. We can bring our attention to that place where there's some obvious sensation. And notice that there can be an awareness that it feels like this now. And notice that 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 experience, that understanding it's like this, it feels like this, is not dependent on any language. You don't need any concept or idea to know it feels like this. You can be quite intimate, clearly aware. And you might, if you're tracking it for a while, you might discern, oh, I bet it's unpleasant because you're trying, there's some habit of wanting to control it or get rid of it or move away from it. Or, and then that would be the telltale sign. That activity of aversion is there and aversion is always born out of unpleasant feeling, right? So that we can, and in the comprehension part, in the discernment part, we can get a, like, oh yeah, so it's probably unpleasant, or it's probably pleasant, because there's some energetic leaning in, attachment, grasping, wanting it to last. But that all, that's a separate thing. That's the emotional reaction to the feeling tone. But it gives us, you know, can inform it. But the feeling tone is its own thing, right? You know, that it feels like this, that my knee, the sensations there feel like this, 
is independent on whether I, right now, desiring to make it go away by, you know, by lifting my leg up and stretching it out a little bit. Oh yeah, that's what it needed. So putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So seeing, feeling in and of itself. And then the Buddha asks, and how does a practitioner remain focused on feeling in and of themselves? There is a case where a practitioner, when feeling a painful feeling, discerns that she's feeling a painful feeling. It's not complicated. When feeling a pleasant feeling, she discerns that she's feeling a pleasant feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, neutral, she discerns that she's feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Oh, it's like this. And how, practitioners, does one in regard to feelings abide contemplating feelings? Oops. I'm, this is a different translation for this next part, but I liked it better than the Ajantani Saros. And then the next par- paragraph goes, when feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, one knows I'm feeling a worldly pleasant feeling. And I'll explain this in a minute. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one knows I'm feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling. And now this is the same for neutral and unpleasant. So the Buddha is now distinguishing between worldly and unworldly pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead, but I'll just give you a little bit of uh, introduction. And this section of the discourse is on our webpage. So I'll just mention that now in case I forget to do it later. So all of the readings will get put up on our webpage, the Buddhist Studies webpage, and it's just buddhaststudies.commongroundmeditation.org. So it's our website, but just put Buddhist Studies as one word, dot, and then our website, and you'll get to our webpage. And uh, as there are more readings and other interesting things, resources, I'll put them up. If you find any good resources, let me know. So this section from the Satipatthana Sutta is up there. And in the translation, Ajahn Tanisaro's translation, he uses <clears throat> a painful feeling of the flesh or a painful feeling not of the flesh. Most translators use worldly and unworldly. So a worldly pleasant feeling is a pleasant feeling that triggers attachment or greed. An unworldly pleasant feeling is something that's pleasant but doesn't trigger greed. So for example, the happiness, the pleasantness of letting go doesn't trigger greed. So when you're in a state of calm, and your mind is steady. Maybe you've been uh, reached or settled into this place tonight during the set. And experiences are just coming and going in the mind. Sounds, people sneezing and coughing or somebody moving. Sensations are coming and going. Memory, thought, mental activities coming and going. But the knowing mind is steady. It's not getting pushed around by the objects of experience that are coming and going. They're still coming and going. The room didn't suddenly get quiet. 
the body sensations did suddenly go away, mental activity didn't suddenly stop. It's now the mind has settled, in a sense it's settled into its own space of knowing, let's say, just to make it simple. The mind has settled into its space of knowing and all the other things, memory, thought, sensation, sound, they're just doing what they're doing according to their causes and conditions. But now the mind doesn't have a problem with that. So this is a mind that's letting go. And that letting go, the not clinging, the not getting pushed around by the sensations and the sounds and the thoughts and memories, that's a letting go, a non-clinging or a renunciation. And that's really pleasant. The not getting pushed around by experiences that are coming and going is really pleasant. It has the flavor of liberation, taste of freedom. Now that kind of pleasantness doesn't lead to attachment because it's exactly in the opposite direction, right? If the mind in, in a moment started to take that personally, it would immediately go away. So the fact that it's there is precisely because the mind's not grasping, not attached. So that's called an unworldly pleasant feeling. So there are inner pleasant experiences that do not trigger attachment. But if somebody brought your favorite dish out into the room and set it here and said, this is for when the class is over, you know, there, delectable, there might be, probably would be, some kind of attachment looking forward to the taste, wondering if it was prepared just right or something. So there'd be some grasping to that experience. So that would be a worldly pleasant feeling. And there were worldly and unworldly neutral feelings. And interestingly, even unworldly unpleasant feelings. I mean, we certainly know worldly unpleasant feelings. Those are all the normal experiences we have of body and mind that we don't like and we want to go away, don't want to be there to feel them. But how about an unworldly, unpleasant feeling? So this comes... uh, I just want to remember what they said before I tell you what I think. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Dissatisfaction with one's spiritual imperfections is considered an unpleasant, unworldly feeling. The Dalai Lama once said something like, instead of being discontent with what you have in life and content with your spiritual practice, we should be content with what we have in life and discontent with our spiritual practice or dissatisfied with our spiritual practice. So maybe a better way to think of this or... uh, Same idea, but a different way to get a sense of what is unworldly. So it's an unpleasant experience that doesn't lead to aversion. Would be something like, some of you heard me or read this uh, very important teaching from the Buddha on Hiri Otapa, the wholesome regret and wholesome um, fear that we have, concern that we have. So when we've made a mistake in our life, And then because it was unskillful, we had painful consequences for it. But it made an imprint in the mind, like, 
I'm not going to forget that. I don't want to do that again. And so when that gets triggered, like the possibility of making that same mistake, then that <clears throat> we, we feel like, whoa, be careful. Don't do that. And that's an unpleasant feeling, like that wholesome fear or wholesome concern or wholesome regret. Oh, yeah, you remember you did that before. And how did that work? It didn't work well at all. So that memory might be painful, but it's not a kind of pain that leads to aversion. We're actually grateful that the mind learned its lesson. Even if there's, in a sense, it's like a monument in our heart, it's painful, a painful monument that's saying, don't do that again. Some of you know, um, who's the Dharma teacher who does a lot with uh, the environment? Thank you, Joanna Macy. She had this great teaching about how with uh, our big mistakes, like all of the nuclear wastes that we don't know what to do with, that we should, instead of burying it, you know, seven miles into the ground or something in some obscure place, we should build a huge temple, like gaudy, something we'll never miss. And it should be a reminder of our human stupidity, like to, I mean, in her point of view, with nuclear power, like to, you know, use something that creates a waste that we don't know what to do with. And it's going to be around for a long time. I don't know if you know this about nuclear waste, but it's like inconceivable, some of it, inconceivable amount of time. And so we don't want to forget that it's there. We want to remember the lesson. And so this is, these unwholesome things, this is what we do with the past mistakes. Instead of hating ourselves for being imperfect hum- an imperfect human being, we transform our mistakes into these beautiful temples that remind us. It doesn't have to be gaudy. <laughs> it can be beautiful. Like, oh yeah, I really don't want to do that again. That really hurt. And that caused a lot of other people hurt. I really don't want to do that again. So that's that unworldly, unpleasant feeling. And when I'm with that unpleasant feeling, the habit isn't to be averse to it. The habit is to be grateful for it. <coughs> because we're grateful that we understand don't do that. So that makes it beautiful. But it has to be unpleasant because that's what reminds us, oh yeah, that's what not to do. So that goes on for the both pleasant or for pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. There's worldly and unworldly feelings. And then the Buddha says, what he says that after all of the meditations in this discourse, the Satipatthana discourse, in this way one remains focused internally on feelings in and of themselves, or externally on feelings in and of themselves, or both internally and externally feelings in and of themselves. Or one remains focused on the phenomenon of origination or the phenomenon of passing away. Or one's mindfulness that there are feelings is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And she remains independent, unsustained by, not clinging to anything in the world. 
This is how a practitioner remains focused on feelings in and of themselves. So some of you remember this with the body that we studied this summer. And these are just the three stages. And I think it's quite useful to remember these three stages of mindfulness. Because it's easy for us in moments at least to get the first stage, to be with feeling in and of itself. We did it just a few minutes ago. Maybe some of you are continuing to do it as you're listening. Because hearing the talk, there's a feeling associated with hearing the talk. Pleasant, neutral, unpleasant. But whatever it is, it's this feeling you're having right now. Even before you know it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, there's a feeling here. And there's a feeling if you bring your attention to the body. And there's a feeling to the air touching your skin. And just to know that, to sort of bring that online, that's what we're doing these eight weeks. More importantly than anything else is this first stage. Remains focused internally, externally, on feeling in and of itself. Not in terms of any thought, what you think the feeling should be, but the direct and immediate experience of feeling. There's some controversy around about what externally means. So internally means the experience here. One thing that uh, resonates with my practice is what Ajahn Tanisaro says. He says that experiencing feeling externally means in terms of the other three foundations. So given that this is unpleasant, It's unpleasant in terms of this achy feeling, which is mindfulness of the body. So unpleasantness in terms of how it is in the physical experience of the body. Or in terms of the mental quality of aversion. Or in terms of the map of the five hindrances, which has aversion not liking as one of the five hindrances. So when we understand this unpleasant feeling that corresponds with the physical mindfulness of body, throbbing, burning, aching, and the mental qualities of aversion and the map of the hindrances and how the hindrances work as a map, a lawful sort of dynamic in the mind. So that's, because that makes more sense to me than some Some uh, translators talk about internally as your feelings, externally as other people's feelings. But if I have a sense that, you know, Steve has unpleasantness or pleasantness, that would be a thought in my mind. So I like what Ajahn Tanesaro, when when the Buddha in this discourse says we should know feeling in and of itself, internally and externally, he translated it as, Directly and indirectly. So directly is, oh yeah, that's a painful feeling. And indirectly is like, that painful feeling is related to the throbbing, burning sensations. Those sensations are unpleasant. And that relates to the mind states that are associated with these unpleasant, these, uh, this unpleasantness. Yeah, Mary Beth. Well, in this course, when we, that's like in English, yeah. But in this course, feelings really referring more specifically to the 
the affective tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality. But remember, they're not really different phenomena. They're just different angles on the same thing. Right? Different facets of the same thing. There's this, but I can really tune in to the unpleasantness of this. Right? I can tune in to the, the sensations as specific, like the hardness, softness, heat or coolness, so the actual physical sensations, and I can tune into what is the mind doing in relationship to these sensations? How is the mind relating? And then I can also be aware of how that whole all of this is understood in terms of the Buddha's map, or how does the Buddha's map of the five hindrances illuminate this experience? Yeah, exactly. And we'll, we'll get there. So the first stage is just seeing it in and of itself. The second stage is seeing the arising and the passing. So with the continuity of awareness on feeling, then what we'll see, like when I'm observing the throbbing, burning, and the unpleasantness of this, then I'm seeing how that, the reality of unpleasantness keeps triggering the mind wanting to be averse the mind wanting to deny it's there, to hide from it, to fix it, or to lash out at somebody else because this hurts. And it's interesting to see that like, you might have sat through a lot of pain and been really still and even somewhat relaxed, but then that the presence of that aversion, if there wasn't a lot of wisdom there or that unpleasantness, it still may have its effect on the mind. And you might be really irritable as you go forward in your day. That has nothing to do with whatever you're experiencing now, but was basically the residue of the unpleasantness here, but all you did was suppress acting it out. So the next stage is we have enough steadiness to look at the unpleasantness and we see what it triggers. Or we look at the pleasantness and we see what it triggers. And we see what gets set in motion. And we see, oh, that's unskillful. That leads to suffering. <clears throat> and we see other possibilities, like when what happens when we have unpleasant sensations, but now we're relating to those unpleasant sensations with wisdom, right view. Like, I'm not taking it personally. I'm really just seeing it as sensations, not my sensations. So what happens? Well, we don't see aversion getting triggered, right? And we might actually (coughs) experience to some degree that there's no problem. There are these intense sensations and the mind can recognize them as unpleasant, but it can't find anybody who has a problem with the unpleasantness. What is unpleasantness when there's nobody there owning the unpleasantness? Where does it land and be a problem? And so so that starts to get revealed in this second stage where we're seeing things coming and going. For example, we're seeing right view and wrong view coming and going. And when wrong view comes and we personalize the unpleasantness, then 
it gets worse. And we'll talk about this in weeks ahead about the second arrow, right? The, the unwholesome mental qualities that start to arise then themselves are unpleasant. So we have the unpleasant sensations and then the hatred or the aversion is unpleasant too. So it just exponentially gets more unpleasant. Adds on and on. And then the last stage, one second, L. And then the last stage, or one's mindfulness that there are feelings is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And one remains independent, unsustained by, not clinging to anything in the world. So this stage of awareness practice, mindfulness practice, is when right view or wisdom is nicely established. And then the awareness of feeling is doesn't need, uh, it's like resting in the no problem. There's no problem. And it's interesting, one of the things that people report in their practice is like how neutral everything becomes. But it's interesting, we'll still know there is knee pain, or we'll still know that that memory is painful, like some remembering the loss of somebody that we cared about. But because there's no aversion, or because there's no greed, the mind assumes you know there's a lot of equanimity, so it feels like it's neutral. Because we don't have the normal reactions. So this is that third stage of mindfulness where there's no irritation. There's no lust or greed. There's no distraction or denial or ignorance. No missing. Because the mind is relating with right view. It's not taking it personally. It doesn't feel like somebody's tied to the different conditions that are coming and going. So what is that experience? And just to kind of hold this out, what is the experience of being a sensitive creature, having mental experience, having physical experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the normal range, but not feeling, not there's no somebody to whom that experience is, to whom the experience belongs or getting uh, imprinted or touched or by that experience. What's that experience? And you can, we can have this all the time. I mean, a lot of what we're doing in our sit, especially when things are more settled, it's like somebody starts making some noise, you know, whatever it might be. And then, well, like uh, the second stage is like, well, noticing the, the tendency to want to judge them, like that shouldn't be happening in the room. But just, bef- just as that's about to happen, the mind senses that that's, that's like the second dart, the second arrow. Like, I don't need to have a problem. I don't need to become the one who doesn't want that person to be moving. So uh, that falls away. And then there's just the sound and that sound is going to be seen, the perception of that sound will be seen as unpleasant if that's how our mind has been conditioned. But it's not, it doesn't belong to anybody. 
So is it a problem that it's unpleasant? Is unpleasantness inherently a problem? Like is there something about knee pain, because this is for, for me obvious now, is there something about these sensations that in their essence are bad, morally bad? Now, only when there's a somebody who doesn't want to experience unpleasant sensations is that bad. But when that construction isn't being constructed, then what is the experience of these throbbing, burning, aching sensations? Al, did you have a question? Well, the, the right answer is for you to examine your own experience because that's a question you can directly investigate. Right? You have your own laboratory of sensation and, and mental activity. If you didn't hear, Al was asking, is there a difference between sensation and thought or not? And uh, <clears throat> it's really interesting. We're so often in our thoughts about things, our experience is so quickly mediated by language that it can appear (coughs) that there isn't a distinction. But the more that the mind understands the experience of non-attachment or non-clinging or just being mindful, right? So then we can, I can bring my attention to this and I'm not suppressing the thought but because with mindfulness, the more technical definition of mindfulness is I'm keeping that particular theme or object in mind. I'm not forgetting that this is what I'm paying attention to, right? That those throbbing, burning, aching sensations. So if I'm keeping that in mind, then everything else is happening in the periphery. And I can see the connection between the sensation and the mental activity or thought, that I can see that they are distinct too. And this is really important. It may seem uh, ultimately unimportant, and ultimately it is unimportant. But initially in our practice, it's really important to deconstruct our experience. And the Buddha has different ways, like these four foundations, It's not like the body happens independent of feeling, mind, and these maps. Or that the mind happens independent of feeling and the body and these maps. They're all happening at the same time. But there's something really important about training the mind to see things, uh, to keep one thing in mind, to keep one thing in view, because it helps the mind wake up to the impersonal uh, nature of our experience of the mind and body. It's like when you really see that feeling is just feeling, it's like a house of cards comes falling apart. Or when you see that sensation is just sensation or anger is just anger. So it's really a setup. The, the deconstruction, the developing, the steadiness, the samadhi, in order to do this deconstruction, is setting up the purification of view. Really, all the work we do in terms of developing a steady, continuous presence, mindful awareness, 
and then taking that mindful awareness and looking at these different meditation themes the Buddha suggests, whether you look at impermanence, the changing nature, or you're looking at the feeling tone, or whatever particular theme you're studying, it's all in support of purifying the view. We're born into, because of our conditioning, we are born into self-view. So all of these teachings are for people who are addicted to self-view, right? Who are so addicted that we don't realize we're addicted to self-view. And so we begin to study our experience in a very precise, subtle way so that the data the mind creates overwhelms the wrong view so it can't be sustained anymore. So this is what we're doing now for the next eight weeks with feeling tone. Because now when we have pain or we have pleasure arising, it's such a, so clearly that, you know, it's my, I'm having that pleasant feeling. It never would occur to us. And it's not enough to tell ourselves, no, 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 that's not personal. We actually have to very systematically see that. And it's subtle. So we need a refined instrument to be able to see what feeling is. What is the feeling? People often come to me, and I come to myself with the same problem, which is, you know, some unpleasant mind state keeps coming up. And we keep telling ourselves, what do you mean? I'm not attached. I already told myself, don't be attached to that. You know, let go already. I have let go already, but yet it keeps coming up. And things keep coming up because the mind hasn't clearly seen what it is. And the way to do that is, the first thing we notice is the content. You know, that person did this to me. I can't believe that person did this to me. Why did they do that to me? It's not fair. That's the content. That's not going to help us very much in this work. But it can remind us when there's content that keeps coming up, there's probably an emotional charge. Oh, I'm afraid. There's fear in my heart. Oh, okay, fear. And that does something. But the next step is to understand that fear, that experience of fear hurts. It's unpleasant. There's an unpleasant feeling tone. That's actually what's most relevant. Not the content, not even the emotion, but that it hurts or that it's pleasant or that it's neutral. So this is the trick. If you want to purify the mind, if you want to become free, you've got to go from the content to the emotional charge to the fact that right now in this moment it hurts or it's pleasant or it's neutral. It feels like this. We've got to go right to the feeling and we have to practice being steady, unafraid, clearly aware, continuously aware, relaxing, holding, embracing, infinitely patient with that niggly, unpleasant or pleasant or neutral feeling. Until the insight arises, it's just feeling. Now we know that already. I mean, you'd pass the test because you know the answer is it's just a feeling. But the insight that it's just a feeling, that it doesn't belong to anybody, that it doesn't land anywhere, 
That is a liberating insight to see. Because to some degree the mind generalizes. It understands that if that feeling is just a feeling, that means all feelings are just feelings. And that is, it's like, it's a, it's a different relationship to the world of phenomena, to the experiences that we have, understanding. Because our relationship to, to the world of experience it's all about the feeling we get. Um, but can't you also learn from those feelings? Uh, but can't you also learn from those feelings? Because I was upset with somebody for three days, and <clears throat> I was suffering so much that I, you know, I finally forgave them just because I couldn't handle the pain. And I noticed I was upset about somebody recently, and my mind, after about 15 minutes, said, don't go there, you know, just don't go there. So I think we learn sometimes from deep pain. Yeah, we learn. I mean, basically, we, we all learn from pain. That's how the, the only reason we're better at this thing called life is the, the great teacher of pain and pleasure has led us, you know, that's what we've been following. So on this relative level, we're still going to follow, you know, when we touch a hot pan, the pain of that burning is going to cause us to let go, and it will remind us when we're close to, you know, wonder, could that be hot? Maybe I'll touch it tentatively at first. So on this worldly level, this is why it's so seductive to take pain and pleasure personally, because on this relative level, of this personality navigating life, pain and pleasure tell us everything. But that's not the same as freedom. No. There are a lot of people who know how to use pleasure and pain to kind of navigate life. But they're not necessarily happy, right? Because they might want more pleasure and less pain. Even though they're relatively skillful at avoiding the pain that can be avoided and getting the pleasure that can be got, they might want more and less of the pain. So just because you're really careful about learning what this sort of direct experience of pain and pleasure teach you, so you think of that as just, that's just the activity of nature. That's how nature communicates with each other. Like there are all these sort of interdependent aspects of nature, even within our own body, you know. And everything, the, the way the whole game is orchestrated is by pleasure and pain. So... Well, sure. Yeah, no, no I'm not... <laughs> no, never forgive. But, but the important, the, the deeper practice is that pain that you felt, well, right, but see, being with it doesn't mean you're not going to apologize or you're not going to forgive, right? Being with it, it's like, so we have some, some old pain that, that we're feeling. To understand that it's just unpleasant and that it means that when we do heal that or forgive or do whatever is appropriate, it just means there's no self-weight to it. So it's done so much more beautifully and appropriately. 
because I'm, I'm not dependent. Like, I'm not forgiving somebody because I need something. I'm forgiving because that's the activity of nature in this moment. That's what nature is doing in this moment. So nature is going to follow, the personality is going to follow the, the law of pain and pleasure. But the mind is understanding that that's nature, that's just nature. So it lightens it all up. That's, what, that's the change. It's like we have to deal with winter. It's coming, right? And uh, one way or another, you know, we've got to get the coats out. We've got to put uh, shorts away. We've got to do all the stuff we have to do. Get the garden ready if you have a yard and put the screens away and do this and the do that. And then we've got to hunker down or whatever we do to get through the winter. But does it have to, does the unpleasantness of winter, if that's what it is for you, does it have to be a personal problem? Does it have to be a weight in our lives? That's the liberation of understanding feeling. Can, maybe winter will always have with it some unpleasant feelings and hopefully some pleasant. But does it have to be a problem that there are unpleasant feelings? Does it have to be a weight on a human heart? that winter comes with unpleasant feelings. Or something more provocative, like the loss of somebody we love. Right. Or you might want to let it go, or you might want to go from the story to the emotional charge to the unpleasantness. And take that moment, because you might just bat the story away, because you know better. (coughs) Or, if there's enough steadiness you may take that opportunity to not suppress or go away from that thought, but just notice that it's unpleasant. Oh, it's just unpleasant. And to take that moment, because a lot of people use mindfulness practice to suppress unskillful thoughts. And it's a real shift in practice when we're not, we practice not being afraid of unskillful thoughts. It's still unskillful. You're right, Helen. And on the fly during the day when we can't really do maybe that more subtle contemplation, it may be useful to just turn away from the unskillful proliferation. But in the, in the context of sitting practice or when things are more settled, more space in the mind, then it may be more useful to notice and to be intimate with the unpleasantness of the unskillful thought. Oh, it's, it's just unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me turn it on. Okay. Tonight when I came in, I was a little upset. And so... The, the, okay. Tonight when I came in, I was a little upset. I was rushing. And uh, as I sat down, I could just see how speedy and restless, and the story kept going over and over in my head. So, you know, I'm watching it. I'm naming it. And at one point I go, okay, I'm, I keep getting caught up in the thoughts you know, I'm not being able to just be with the feelings. Um, the story keeps coming in. So what I did, now is this right or wrong? I, <laughs> I did 10 counts of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, out 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 to kind of calm down my parasympathetic nervous system. And then I found the story kept coming, but there was a lot more space. 
and it was a lot easier for me to be with the unpleasantness. Now, is that skillful, or should I have gone a little deeper? Okay. All those who thought it was skillful, raise your hand. <laughs> I thought that was skillful, because we have to understand, you know, and it's on the fly, but we have to assess in that moment whether there's enough steadiness to do that. And from what, the way you described it, Helen, there wasn't. So then you did something that redirected the attention away, brought up more of the experience of samadhi, right? Which gives the mind some resilience, some immunity to getting seduced by the content. And so then we can actually go from the content to the charge to the underlying feeling tone. Yeah. Yeah, Nick. Could the uh, implications that have been made here tonight... They're closer. To my mouth? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Could the implications that you've made tonight about recognition of what is be considered um, the truth, recognizing the truth? Yeah. Because we don't own it. It isn't ours. Yeah. We it's don't own it. It isn't of us. the truth of nature. Yeah. That's exactly right. So this is what we I'm mean. I'm trying to understand the payoff for developing this habit and succeeding at it. We get into more of unworldly feelings. Is that... Yeah. Yeah. Nick asked, do we get into unworldly feelings? Yes. We get into the, the happiness, the unworldly happiness of letting go, of renunciation, of non-attachment. And it's hard to talk about in words, but we get a little flavor every time, you know, what Helen was talking about and other people have been talking about, where we get to the feeling... And we're intimate with that feeling. And we're so intimate with that feeling, so clearly aware it's just this feeling being known, that in that moment, wrong view, the sense of a self who has this unpleasant feeling, let's say, that is now no longer there. It's no longer getting constructed. The mind isn't constructing a somebody who has a problem or who wants this pleasant feeling to last. And the absence of that construction is a very distinct feeling of lightness and freedom. And so, and then to, 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 in moments when the mind begins to generalize what just happened, it begins to understand it's always okay. It's always been okay. It always will be okay. So then that's the maturing of that insight, that liberating insight. So the whole point of doing this is to support liberation in the mind, the freedom of the mind. It's just that this, surprisingly maybe, feeling tone is the place in practice that is uh, ultimately liberating. So it's, I mean, there are different ways people talk about it, but the, one of the ways the Buddha highlighted over and over again is being aware of feeling tone. Because it's what drags us around through life. Watch, tomorrow, this is your homework, because we need to end now. This is all of our homework this week, is mostly what we're going to see is how, in any moment, just look, we're getting dragged around by some feeling tone. Whatever we're doing, in terms of our mental activity or physically, it's about getting some pleasant feeling or getting rid of some pleasant, unpleasant feeling. 
All the fidgeting we do, turning over in bed, looking in the refrigerator, you know, scrolling through the internet. Yeah, we're just trying, we're being led around by our desire for pleasant and our desire to get rid of unpleasant. So see that, and then you really get how much of human suffering is immediately directly tied to the misunderstanding of feeling. Thinking that the feeling is personal. The feeling tone is personal. And the only way we're going to find out whether that's actually true is we have to become intimate with it. And to be intimate means we have to be steady. It's not a moment of being aware of the feeling tone. It's being aware of the feeling tone and staying right with it. Now, today in the email, I sent you an article by um, Gloria Ambrosia, one of the longtime teachers, insight meditation teachers. And uh, she wrote a nice article, I thought, in, uh, that was in the Madison uh, newsletter because uh, she's taught there off and on over the years. And so I encourage you to read that this week. It will be a nice introduction to this theme. And then there are a few things already on our webpage, buddhaststudies.kamagarmeditation.org. And remember, if you wrote your email down but already get emails, take it off. And if you don't get the email for the group, make sure your email is printed neatly. Yeah, next Monday, for the next eight Mondays. Although I will be out of town on November 2nd, and so that will be an optional class, and I'll have a a really good talk on the mindfulness of feeling that people can listen to, whoever wants to come that night, and then just have a group discussion, and I'll have somebody lead that discussion. So that will be on November 2nd, and I'll let you know as we get closer. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.